you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. If you took a poll of random adults and asked them why teens having premarital sex is a problem, what would be the majority view? For those who actually see it as a problem, I would guess that its consequences would be the main issue, like a sexually transmitted disease or an unwanted pregnancy. If, in fact, the consequences of premarital sex are the central concern, then the solution to premarital sex is easy. Have sex, but use a condom or other birth control methods to avoid diseases and babies. But if there's an even greater and higher reason that premarital sex is a problem, such as it goes against God's command and design for our sexuality, then a different solution has to be advanced. When we believe that God created us as sexual beings and gave us the gift of sex, then we are also called to follow his design and commands regarding our sexuality. Helping teens caught up in the sin of premarital sex biblically moves us beyond just behavioral change or the prevention of its consequences to the necessary real heart and life change. Sadly, teenagers who are engaging in premarital sex open themselves up to all sorts of consequences, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, and relational ones. Some of those, such as depression, anxiety, anger, and substance abuse, are covered in other podcasts. Others, like the problems of teenage pregnancy or sexually transmitted diseases, are beyond the current scope of this episode. So the focus of this topic today will be on the two broad categories of teenage premarital sex and how we are to handle them biblically. The problems of premarital intercourse and premarital outer course. But to be abundantly clear of what we are discussing today, teenage premarital sex is any sexual activity between teenagers outside of marriage. Sexual intercourse, then, occurs whenever there is penetration of the female vagina by the male penis. Premarital outer course, then, is essentially everything else. In other words, to avoid the consequences of sexual intercourse, teenagers may engage in various forms of sexual activity that don't include vaginal sex. Some examples of this sort of premarital sex include mutual masturbation, genital massage, what is commonly called dry humping, oral sex, and anal sex. Since we always should be about getting to the heart of the matter with our teens, then both of these categories, the category of sexual intercourse as well as outer course, must be properly dealt with. In other words, it's not good enough to just keep our teens from getting pregnant or developing some sort of sexually transmitted disease but allowing them to engage in sinful sexual behavior. We want our teens to be sexually pure and chaste in a world that regularly scoffs at the very idea of such a thing. Now, it's tempting for us to ignore the signs of teenage premarital sex. 
Oftentimes, it can feel like a problem that is out there, but not within our Christian community. Even worse, it can be a subject that is rarely talked about in the family or in the church, with almost a silent expectation that teenagers who are dating just need to handle the temptation to the sin all on their own. Yet when we have a basic understanding of sinful hearts and teenage sexuality, it should lead us to be more righteously suspicious and vigilant. Sometimes a teenager will admit the sin of premarital sex or the temptation to go in that direction. Other times it is only caught by parents or revealed by teenage pregnancy or a sexually transmitted disease. How much better it is to get involved early in the process, counseling a teen biblically to navigate sexual desires and dating relationships. God's Word gives us the following clear principles to address this problem of the heart, mind, and body. So first, let's talk about teenage sexuality. Christian parents can see their adolescents as still children, failing to understand their growing sexual desires and interests. Fewer and fewer parents are having the birds and the bees talk with their children early enough or at all allowing teens to learn about their sexuality from various media sources or peers. Oftentimes, the local church is mute on the subject as well, other than infrequent lessons on pornography or homosexuality. So preventative conversations are required as part of the discipleship of our children, not just after sexual sin has occurred. Teenagers should not have to figure out their sexuality on their own, or great peril will await. An approach that either ignores teen sexual impulses or just requires them to exert self-control until marriage without ongoing discipleship will often be ineffective. In that same vein, we must be cautious not to adopt the culture's view of teenage sexuality. In the entertainment media, teens are depicted simply as sexual animals with raging hormones that cannot be controlled. The beautiful and popular teenagers think about little else than sexual conquests or physical bodies. Losing one's virginity is celebrated and encouraged as a rite of passage for teenagers. While these messages are certainly reflective of some teens in our culture, they also seek to train other teenagers to think about themselves in these ways. So we must be realistic in understanding the temptation but refuse to accept the fatalistic view of teenage sexuality that is resonant in the culture. Teenagers do not have to be slaves to their sexual impulses, nor come to believe that premarital sex is a glorious and coveted escapade. They need to learn God's view of sex, as well as biblical principles to live in purity before marriage. Which means that above and beyond anything else, they need to learn to honor marriage. In days past, children were trained to know that certain activities and behaviors were solely reserved for adults. Grown-ups drink coffee, not children. As my grandfather always warned, it will stunt your growth. Adults choose the menu. Children eat what they are served. Adults drink alcohol. Children cannot. Most of these distinctions have fallen by the wayside through the years, with some changes being more detrimental than others. The point is that children and teens are much more accustomed than ever before to engage in activities once reserved for adulthood. 
So that may make it increasingly difficult to tell teenagers that sex is meant only for marriage. Much more often, they hear cultural messages like, only engage in sex if you're truly in love. Or, you need to experiment sexually so you know if you want to be with a certain partner for life. Communicating that all types of sexual experiences, in addition to intercourse, should be relegated to marriage is even more difficult. While teens have always been tempted to act like adults long before chronological adulthood, it appears to be more acceptable than ever and less resisted by adults than in the past. The writer to the Hebrews commands, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Hebrews 13.4 While the problem of extramarital affairs often comes to mind when reading these words, they clearly pertain to premarital sex as well. If the marriage bed represents the complete sexual experience between a husband and wife, then any other form is out of bounds. To keep the marriage bed undefiled, one must first honor marriage. Marriage must be seen as the only intimate human relationship that rightly involves sexual activity. So Christians wait to have sex with the opposite sex until marriage because God has made marriage honorable and glorious. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Marriage is between one man and one woman as the two become one flesh sexually and emotionally, mentally, and relationally as well. Teenagers who truly revere and honor marriage will also believe that premarital sex is not honorable or desirable. Then we need to deal with the problem of dating too early. Gabby, a 16-year-old teenager, claims to not have had sexual intercourse with her boyfriend yet, even though they have done just about everything else. She has been with her boyfriend for four years, so she has been allowed to date from at least the age of 12. Now, there's certainly many Christian parents who see no problem with teens and even preteens dating very early. The days of teenagers having to wait until their sweet 16th birthday have become a thing of the past for many. Yet common sense says that early dating practices only increase the chances that premarital sexual activity will occur, especially within the context of a singular long-term dating relationship. The very nature of modern dating encourages teenagers to become intensely emotionally intimate which easily spills over into physical intimacy. It seems like a pretty sizable burden to ask young teens to handle the adult nature of a committed relationship with the opposite sex, yet save any sexual activity for marriage. While the debate between those who advocate for modern dating versus those who practice a courtship model or other varieties of dating practices is beyond the scope of this podcast, The subject will need to be addressed when premarital sex becomes involved. Should Gabby and her boyfriend be allowed to continue to date now that it has been exposed that they are engaging in certain types of sexual activity? Or do we encourage the relationship to continue, just instructing them to be more careful and not going any further sexually? Even if they were told to not date anymore because of the nature of the physical relationship, 
will the couple comply if they believe they are destined to marry? Whatever your stance on teenage dating is, allowing committed relationships too early will most likely open the door to premarital sexual activity. As I have found out as a parent myself, encouraging teenagers to wisely wait to begin the process towards marriage may be difficult, but it will help prevent the unwanted sexual activity. So what can you do if, like in Gabby's case, a teenager has long been allowed to date from an early age? In some ways, it is too late to backtrack on the decision since there is no such thing as a teenage time machine. Yet your teen needs to think through what early dating has brought into his or her life. Beyond just the physical component, early dating will have taken a toll on your teen emotionally and spiritually. Rarely does it encourage growth in Christ or the pursuit of maturity emotionally and relationally. So Gabby may actually desire to take a break from dating to grow in her relationship with Christ. Clearly, it is much better to address this issue at age 12 than at age 16, when many other teens are already dating as well. Now let's consider the problem of the serious teenage relationship. Hal and Iris are teens who are demonstrably too physical in public. When they are challenged, you find out that they have had sexual intercourse a couple of times already. Even though Hal and Iris are professing Christians, they rationalize that this behavior is acceptable because they are committed to being married one day. Their serious relationship has given them the freedom to be fully physically connected. When asked about their timeline of engagement and marriage, Hal and Iris haven't even thought that far ahead yet, wanting to graduate from college at least. So what do we do with this mindset? Similar to our dating too early problem, there are many teenage couples who have committed to each other too early, giving themselves to one another before marriage. They are acting married while not even being engaged. Sexual intimacy has been regarded as what happens when your heart is committed, whether or not there is an actual covenant marriage. This young couple certainly needs to learn to honor marriage above and beyond defining it as simply a serious relationship. They need to be taught about the covenant of marriage and how we become one flesh only when true covenant promises are exchanged before God. As professing believers, they need to know 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5 applies to them. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. They are being sexually immoral by God's standards, acting in the passion of lust, even if they are rationalizing it as solely based on their commitment to one another. As tough as it may be for the serious teenage couple, continued sexual activity must wait until marriage. Will that mean they need to marry early? Possibly. Or maybe it would be wiser to end the relationship if they cannot stop the sexual activity. There should be no option given to simply continue having sex because they may get married one day. Well, on this issue, we must also address the teenage hookup mentality. Jerry, a 17-year-old, is committed to sexual conquests rather than serious relationships. 
While there have always been teenagers who simply want to have sex with as many people as possible, the hookup mentality has reached new heights in our culture. Fueled by social media, websites, and apps on smartphones, it is easier than ever to find other people who simply want to engage in sexual experimentation of any kind. Sometimes, like in Jerry's case, this behavior is disguised by weak attempts at dating relationships. Other times, it is a brazen hedonism sought after by a teenager for simple, lustful personal pleasure. Either way, the consequences of sex with many partners is obvious, physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, and spiritually. This sort of teenage premarital sex is most like the pagan world, detached from any real desire to please God with our bodies. How do we counsel then a teenager with this mentality and overall pattern of behavior? The first question which needs to be asked is, is he even a Christian? It is extremely difficult to rationalize how sexual conquest with various partners is compatible with a love for Jesus. So Jerry probably needs to be converted in order for his sexual activity to change. Beyond that, he would need to embrace what God's Word says about sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 Jerry's lifestyle reveals an unrighteous heart that will keep him from the kingdom of God. True repentance, conversion, and sanctification must occur to be cleansed from this sin. Again, it is not right for an unrepentant sexual immorality to be a part of the Christian life. So what then do we do with the pervasive problem of outer course? Let's return to 16-year-old Gabby and her boyfriend. They are committed to staying virgins, yet are participating in what has become known today as outer course. As a play on the familiar word intercourse, this cluster of sexual behaviors enables teens to ostensibly abstain from vaginal sex. Gabby and her boyfriend may be engaging in oral or anal sex, mutual masturbation, genital massage, prolonged sexualized kissing, or other sexualized activities. So while this couple may be considered technical virgins, does that mean their behavior is God-glorifying and acceptable as followers of Christ? Not only are they engaging in sexual sin, Gabby and her boyfriend are deceiving themselves if they think they will not have sexual intercourse at some point in the process. Using these outer course activities will inevitably increase their sexual desire for each other, not reduce or prevent it. It will only take one small mistake to move from outer course to inner course as passions are inflamed and fanned. These highly sexualized activities are sinful in and of themselves because these teens are abusing each other's bodies for their own sexual pleasure outside of marriage. The classic question for teenagers has always been, how far is too far? Depending on which Christian you talk to, there are many different opinions on the subject. Some would argue that teens who are dating shouldn't even kiss until engagement or marriage. Others draw the line more on avoiding contact with private parts. 
While there are not hard and fast rules given to us in Scripture, there are clearly activities that are much too far for teenagers, including oral and anal sex. A teen like Gabby needs solid biblical counseling to talk through the particular behaviors and their consequences. What's fueling the desire to go as far as possible without sexual intercourse? If they are followers of Christ, what's going on in their consciences? Do they really believe that the choices of outer course activities is God glorifying and keeping them pure? This is a place where we want to see our teens pursuing hearts of wisdom rather than seeking their own personal passions. Rather than simply handing out rules and limits, Christian teens need to mature in their view of sex and dating relationships. Now we need to consider the dual problems of privacy and privilege. Oftentimes, one of the contributing factors to the problem of premarital sex is the privacy afforded many of our teenagers. Obviously, sexual activity typically occurs in private, so teenage couples who desire to sin in this way will seek to be alone as much as possible. In most Christian circles today, the idea of a chaperone for dating teenagers is archaic, invasive, and nearly impossible. But because of the ease of teens to find places and situations to be alone, are we affording them too much freedom? This is compounded by the unhealthy privacy a personal smartphone gives to our teens. With this technology, they can hide conversations, plans, and online habits much more readily than in the past. So along with this era of privacy and solitariness, are we teaching our teens responsible actions and attitudes? Unfortunately, this is not usually the case. Teens are often left to themselves at home too much with both parents working or given opportunity to be alone with the opposite sex in other places as well. Again, there may be nothing new here, yet it is a variable to the problem that must be addressed. Teenagers can also be given too many privileges way too early, including during the preteen years. Our changing technology has made a smartphone a required instrument in the hand of teenagers. When teens are of age to be a licensed driver, many are given the privilege of owning their own car as well. Teenagers can also be given too much money to spend in whatever way they desire. These and many other privileges are often not tethered to responsibility and maturity, but simply become a right of adolescence. So a sense of entitlement can fuel a desire to experiment sexually, thereby allowing a teenager to act more as an adult. But let's not forget to deal with the heart and the mind. It is tempting to make the problem of teenage premarital sex into only a behavioral problem, with the solution being no teenage sex. But as with all problems, it is essential to dig down deep into the heart of the matter. What is at the root of this particular sexual activity? In Jerry's case, his behavior may simply be coming from a rebellious heart. Fueled by sinful pride, he wants to be the king of his own universe. Yet for other teens, the behavior may be founded on many other heart issues. Anxiety, anger, self-pity, shame, etc. Gabby may be operating from a heart of fear that she won't be loved unless she gives her body away to her boyfriend. Hal and Iris simply could be idolizing their relationship, worshiping each other rather than God. 
Many teenagers seek to find their identity in relationships with the opposite sex, falling into the sin of premarital sex as a consequence. As much as we want the behavior to change, this problem gives an opportunity to expose the teenager's heart. Accordingly, sexual sin is connected to a mind that needs to be renewed. In the world's eyes, teenagers barely have a brain since they are considered to be merely motivated by animal impulses. The reality is that Satan is fighting for our teens' hearts as well as their minds. As the great deceiver, he is filling their minds with lies about themselves, sex, and relationships. So what is your teen thinking when it comes to his or her sexuality? Does Jerry believe he can't help himself since he is such a sexual god? Does Gabby believe she is safe and secure in this relationship, creating the need for sexual experience? Do Hal and Iris both think their sexual activity won't have any real bearing on their future marriage if they marry one another? It's essential to challenge the belief systems and thought patterns of our teens. You may discover that he or she is not thinking in rational or truthful ways. Well, here's another vital biblical principle. The body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Even though it is essential to get to a teen's heart, he or she must recognize that this is still a very serious body problem. To the church at Corinth, Paul wrote, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20 There are several applicable truths here for our teens. First, sexual immorality is a sin against a person's own body. God has given us bodies to care for properly and use for his glory, not for our own sinful pleasure. When there is sexual sin between two teenagers, then two created bodies are being violated. Second, the body was created as a home for the Holy Spirit. In our sin, we think our bodies are our own to do with whatever we please. But as Christians, our teens need to recognize that their body is meant to be a place of worship for the Holy Spirit. Even though it is hard to get our heads around this truth, the Holy Spirit resides in us. The third fact is, God is to be glorified by everything the body does. So to allow our bodies to participate in sexual sin is glorifying self, not God. Your teen needs to embrace the fact that his body is not his own. Paul makes the solution to the problem of teenage premarital sex abundantly clear. Run from it. Don't just walk away. Flee. Sexual sin has a way of drawing us in like a huge electromagnet. If we dabble in it just a little, it becomes more and more addicting and even natural. Where God's word says that sexual morality is a sin against our own bodies, the world and the devil tell our teenagers the exact opposite. How can something that feels so good be labeled as bad? That's just those old Victorian era Christians who are trying to make you feel guilty. But again, we bring teenagers back to the fact that if they belong to Christ, their bodies are not their own. 
Gabby, Jerry, Iris, and Hal are not allowed to offer their bodies to someone else who is not their spouse. They are not free to use their bodies in any way they choose. If the Holy Spirit is in his temple, they must worship him alone, not self or someone else. So here's just a couple more items concerning the problem of teenage premarital sex. The first one is the need for parental involvement. If you are a parent of a teen who has just been discovered to be sexually active, it is certainly a time to grieve the loss of a certain amount of innocence. You may also feel guilt and shame for not preventing the sin in the first place or for being naive and unaware. Use this time to evaluate your level of involvement in the life of your teenager. He or she may be in rebellion against you and the Lord. Or this may be a way to compensate for the love not felt from mom or dad. Again, it could simply have occurred because of too much freedom and privilege. It should go without saying that a teenager needs parents to be deeply involved in his or her relationships with the opposite sex. Yet it often appears that too many teenagers are left alone to navigate this essential part of life. Teens need all the spiritual mentors in their lives for a whole host of issues, yet they can never replace the Christian parent. If lack of involvement has contributed to the problem, then that is one area that a parent does have responsibility to change. What should parental involvement look like? It will certainly vary from parent to parent. At the core of it, a parent must be emotionally and relationally available to his or her teen. Both mom and dad need to be able to speak to heart struggles and battle the lies that are underlying the sinful behavior. While it can be hard to show the same love and affection that you did when your teen was a toddler or a child, hugs, kisses, and parental warmth should never disappear. It is one thing to allow your teenager to be free to make decisions and to begin to fly. It is quite another to abandon the teen, leaving him to his own ways and desires. Parents must be parents, continuing to teach, train, discipline, and love throughout the teenage years. Your teen may act like he has it all figured out and doesn't need you anymore, but you know that's just not true. When teenagers engage in sexual sin, it demonstrates their training is not over, and they are not ready for life as a Christian adult. And finally, we must not leave this subject without looking to the grace of God. While some of our teenagers may have plunged headlong into sexual rebellion, there are many others who have just made a mistake or even a series of mistakes. They have mistakenly crossed a boundary that they knew they shouldn't and now feel great guilt and shame. In either case, outright rebellion or mistake, our teens need to be shown the grace of God for their sin. Unfortunately, some may face the consequences of unwanted pregnancy, sexually transmitted disease, or emotional scarring from the relationship. Yet all teens can enjoy the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God as they confess and turn from their sins. Our teenagers who have committed sexual sin don't have to walk around with a scarlet letter on their chests. Their sin can be washed by the blood of the Lamb. As destructive as premarital sex is, The grace of God is powerful to save and restore. 
So don't allow your teen to believe lies about their future as if this sin has ruined their lives. What a great opportunity to communicate grace and mercy and to point them to their Savior. It may be a hard path moving forward from sexual sin, yet it is a glorious road when teens are walking it with Jesus and with other believers who truly love them in Christ. If you want to read more about helping teens to solve a problem like premarital sex biblically, remember to pick up my forthcoming book, Pursuing a Heart of Wisdom, Counseling Teenagers Biblically, available from Christian Focus. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.